Assalamu alaikum everyone. Welcome to our virtual Open Iftar 2021 and thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Farah and I will be your host for this evening. So um, we are joined today by Dr. Shola Mos Shogabimimu and uh, we have an exciting event planned. And before we get started, I would first like to thank our media partner for this year, Islam Channel, and give a special welcome to those joining us from Islam Channel's Facebook and YouTube. Um, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you join us today. I also would like to thank the Arts Council UK, whose help is allowed to continue our work this Ramadan, and all of which is available on our website. Our work this Ramadan is supported by Islamic Relief, our charity partner, and you can check out the incredible work that Islamic Relief does on iruk.co forward slash rtp. So, I mean, Dr. Shola is an absolutely fantastic speaker. We've got her for a short time, and after that, we'll have some discussion. And um, just a little bit, we're going to dive straight in today. And um, for those who are joining on the Islam channel, do jump on, um, go to ramadantentproject.com, jump onto the Zoom, get in here, get interactive. It'll be great to see you guys. So um, a little bit about Dr. Shola. Um, Dr. Shola is a political and women's rights activist and has taught intersectional feminism to female refugees and asylum seekers. Dr. Shola scrutinizes government policies from gender and diversity point of view and co-organizes women's marches and social campaigns. She's also a New York attorney and solicitor of England and Wales with broad expertise in the financial services industry. She's a writer, a public speaker, and a political commentator. Dr. Shella has founded the Women in Leadership publication as a platform to drive positive change on topical issues that impact women globally through inspiring personal leadership journeys. And Dr. Shella has also established the she at Law Talks to promote women and BAME leadership in the legal profession through universities and secondary schools. Today's topic is um, belonging in 21st century um, Britain. So we're going to touch on the social and the civil rights um, aspect of that. And um, over to you, Dr. Shola. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, I'm very chuffed to be so here much. today. I'm going to try not to talk for too long because I know that we're in the process, almost getting to the, to the time when we have to break, um, break fast, right? So it's important that our conversation keeps you, you know, keeps your attention, keeps you engaged until that moment. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Shana, how's, um, obviously we're sort of towards the end of um, Ramadan and um, whereabouts are you based, Dr. Shana? Where are you um, speaking to us from today? South London. Oh, lovely. The best place. The best place to be. Yeah, depending on depending, 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 but don't let's get into that. But yeah, depending. <laughs> Fantastic. So we'll start off a little bit by, I mean, there's so many interesting topics that we can talk about today. So let's start off with something that's got very topical at the moment, which is the civil rights um, movement. Um, especially what's happening in the US and also here. So would you like to share your thoughts on that and then later we'll move to your faith as well? Well, I think the first thing to say is that, you know, when we talk about civil rights movement, right? You and I, I I'm sure I'm older than you, 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 you look so young, so fresh. So I'm not going to assume your age, but I, I kind of want to say, we're of the generation where we grew up hearing about the civil rights movement of the 60s and the 70s and all the things that were done to give people like us the opportunities that we have today, right? But then when you look into it, right, with a magnifying glass and you remove that magnifying glass, you see, jack all has changed. 
We're still fighting on the same issues. We're still, equality has not moved as much as it should have. Um, it, it, it's clear that government policies pay lip service to what should be true equality. It is clear that the practical solutions we should have in place to, mani to manifest diversity and inclusion is playing a lot of lip service uh, to people's lives. So look, the fight is still on. This is not a moment for anybody to rest on their laurels and go, you know what? I'm a woman of the 21st century, so everything's a-okay. I'm like, heck no. The patriarchy still very much exists. It's not okay for Black, Asian, ethnic minorities to go, well, you know, we no longer have signs that say no Blacks, no dogs, no Irish, you know, so we can rest on our laurels. No, 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 because the discrimination has evolved in such a way that they don't need those signs anymore. They found other ways to exclude and discriminate. So I would say that the 21st century, if anything, is teaching us that there's so much more work to be done and that discrimination exclusion is both overt and covert and we need to be sharp to these things so we can address them quickly i mean particularly when you think about intersectionality when you think about how we all represent diverse representations and how each of our representations is is attacked one way or the other so you can't truly be you imagine being black Muslim, um, LGBT, you know, and a few other protected characteristics, you are experiencing the kind of life that exists in a toxic environment that nobody seems to be hearing your pain. So the 21st century is not the bed of roses. You would imagine that six, 50, 60 years ago, activists back then would have gone, yeah, in 50, 60 years time, all of these issues would have gone. No, 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 no. We still have to keep fighting. You've made some really important points there and you've um, touched on diversity. So before we move on to that, um, as a woman, as a female, what does a civil rights movement look to you? What would you hope for that to achieve? Let's focus in the UK, which is real base full time. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, what does civil rights look like to me? Let me tell you what we should be achieving. You and I should not have to be having this conversation or even asking this question right now in 2021. Do you see what I mean? And I'm a, I'm a mother of three girls. And I'm like, oh my goodness, are you telling me that my girls might have to be having the same conversation in, I don't know, 10 years time? It makes no sense to me. It should be the case that we should not have gender pay gap issues. It should be the case that the, the, the contributions, those invincible contributions that women make to the economy through the self, through the care economy that we provide, that it should be recognized. But we don't have that yet. We are still fighting to have a voice on the table. That is just being a woman. Not to start talking about being a black woman or being an Asian woman or being a, you know, a woman, an ambitious, career-minded woman. Think about it, all kinds of barriers that we keep having to jump over these hurdles because some people don't want to give us the space we need to grow. That's why I think I think the theme of the um, of the IFTA is very interesting when you talk about belonging in the 21st century. Because if you ask me, or 21st century Britain, if you ask me what that looks like today, this is what I'll say to you, Farah. I say belonging in 21st century Britain is you taking your place. 
because there are people who don't want to give you the space that belong to you. So you need to just step into that space and go, uh-huh. Were you saying something? Who are you talking to? It's almost like we need to step into that space and own it. Because uh, I'm done with this whole, well, you know, why, why don't we wait our turn? I don't have a hundred years to wait for some people to catch up with me. I don't have a hundred years for people to go, well, maybe it's okay for her to be ambitious. Who the heck gave anybody the right to determine my ambition or to, to place some kind of limit on who I'm meant to be? What utter nonsense. So I say belonging in 21st century, be it as a woman, be it as a you know ethnic minority, be it as a career-minded person, and whichever other protector characteristic you belong to, it means taking your space. And yes, for some people to go, well, that doesn't sound very gentle. <laughs> Well, if you're looking for someone to go, oh, yes, please, may you come take your space? Can you please just get out of my way? Because I know that that's not the world we live in. The world we live in is creating barriers. And that means you need to fight your fight. You need to take your space. You need to be able to say, yeah, I'm a Christian woman. I'm going to do this. Yes, I'm a Muslim woman. I'm going to do that. Yes, I'm a mother of four and I'm still going to have a career. I'm still going to have you know, a business or I'm a mother and I want to stay at home. Not have you know, society dictate to us what or who we are or, or to determine for us what our belonging looks like. I don't have time for that. You know what, and I absolutely 100% agree with you, and that's exactly the way my mother has um, brought us up. And it's, you're so right, as it's so important to create a space, and particularly as a woman, it's so important to create that space. Because um, you've touched on this, but maybe a little bit more. You hear about um, a lot of women with imposter syndrome. Um, how can women create spaces in leadership positions? especially those that are from the black and ethnic and black and Asian and different communities, because, you know, a lot of women do find that challenge. What but advice would you give to women? How can we create spaces, spaces and leadership positions? Yeah. How can we create? Women are the, so, we are the creators, right? How would you, yeah. Right? Okay. So just by definition, we create, we procreate, we are the creator. Right. So as far as I'm concerned, just by being is me creating that space already. There is no, I don't know, calculus system. It, it, we just need to recognize that being who you are and understanding that every position you have calls you to be a blessing to, to somebody else means that every position you get to, you should leave that gate open. So you bring other people with you. Don't overthink it. Just think about, oh, there's another fire coming up behind you. There's another shoulder coming up behind you, right? And then you, you share your experiences. But you need to go take those spaces. Don't wait for those spaces that you're in to be called leadership positions. Maybe that's a how. You call it a leadership position. Don't wait to be called an influencer by LinkedIn before you understand that you are an influencer. <laughs> Influence the heck out of every position you're in. Call it what it ought to be. And the people who simply follow your lead. That's what I think. You know, if I'm waiting to be called CEO before I start acting like a CEO, I'm going to be waiting forever. So you know what? I'm going to act like a CEO 
wear my CEO heels, put on my CEO, you know, hairstyle, speak my CEO speech. I dare anybody not to call me CEO by the time I'm done. You have no choice but to follow me. So I say, look, women, we are already in that space. Take it, own it, be it, manifest it, and it will be everything you want it to be. By the grace of God, inshallah. 100%, totally agree with you there. So for those of um, our audience who are not familiar with you, could you just very, very briefly let the audience know a little bit on what you work on specifically and um, also how growing up led you to take the path that you've, um, what experience you had growing up led you to take the path that you've taken now? Oh my God, I find it so boring talking about myself, <laughs> to be perfect. Well, for our audience, you may not be familiar. I think it would be absolutely fantastic if okay. you could summarize that because I, I've done lots of reading on you. I know how awesome you are, but it'd be great to let other people know about the amazing work that you're doing. Okay, so oh, look, I wear multiple hats and um, that's just who I am. I get bored with just doing one thing and I feel we all have you know, different callings. So I'm very much a, a, a person who speaks to do everything you are called to, to do. I'm a woman of faith, first, first and foremost. My faith is at the center of everything I do. Even though it might not sound like it when you hear me very angry about certain societal issues, but hey, look, I know that when the good Lord created me, I was not an accident. So I am probably reflecting some of that, you know, um, you know, whatever anger that what the heck is going on, we must bring about change. I do a lot of advocacy work um, and activism around political issues, so societal issues, women, women's rights and human rights issues. I'm a lawyer, as you as you pointed out earlier. Um, but the more fun part, look, I'm a mom of three. Um, I love dancing. Eating is one of my most favorite things in this world. I know, I know, I need to work on that because that's not very helpful. Um, look, I think if you follow me or check out my website, that gives you a whole lot more information, but I always feel like, when I have to talk about myself. <laughs> and yet, I'm the author of This Is Why I Resist. Well, that, well, it was, I, well, I found that very interesting. So. We're going to move on to the next question. So Shabana asks, um, we spoke a little bit, a lot about institutional racism. And what more can the, Shabana asks, what can the government do to challenge institutional racism? That's a question from one of our audience. Hold on a second, oh my God. Okay, so the question is, what can the government do to challenge institutional racism? Let me tell you why I'm laughing. We have a government that is denying institutional racism. So people, the first thing we need is a government that acknowledges and recognizes that institutional racism exists. It's a problem and it's manifested in the very politics that the, that the government, you know, uses. So I think that's the first thing. And, you know, having to, that's why I laughed. I laughed because it's either I'm going to be, I mean, I'm always just so, angry at this this useless government's way of managing societal issues or mismanaging societal issues that it's either i respond angry or i laugh so it's better that i laugh so the first thing we must do is is hold this government accountable you have boris johnson's race commission recently come out with a race report that was as riddled with lies as it was every untruth you can possibly think of, denying that institutional racism is an issue. Why did it do that? It's because Boris Johnson 
right after the Black or during the Black Lives Matter protests last year, said institutional racism does not exist and he's going to start up a race commission, which, guess what? A year or almost a year later comes out saying exactly what Boris Johnson said. So the first thing we must do is hold this government accountable. Heck, even better than that, change this government and get a government that recognizes the real issues in the country. And then we can start talking about how to tackle it. But the, the worst people to tackle an issue are the people who deny an issue exists. Hundred percent. Um, we've got some lots of questions coming in, so I'm going to go to Rayhan's question now. Um, Shaban's really happy to hear about your journey as well, so thank you so much for sharing that. Um, Rayhan asks, what specific ideas and policies would you like to implement to help address the issues that you raise? All right, so there are different issues that I raise. Okay, so, so, so first what specific all, ideas would you like right. to implement? But that's why I'm saying there are different issues. So I just have to pick one or two. If we, if we look at issues around um, intolerance, when we look at issues around the phobias that we have in the country today, so whether that's anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, um, homophobia, all of these critical issues, the kind of solutions I expect us to implement, I think does not just start from the top, at the top level, but it also starts from the bottom up. It starts with us. I really need us to start to recognize that if we are not embodying the, what's the best way? Because if I use the word love, people might go, oh, she sounds so something. If we are not embodying the understanding of appreciation and acceptance, how the heck do you expect those at the top level in your government or in your workplaces to do the same? How can we not, I mean, we need to begin to understand what it is that is holding us back as a society and as individuals to do better to each other. I'm sorry, but if you put a politician in place who is anti-Semitic, so that speaks to your own anti-Semitism. If you put a politician in place who is Islamophobic, it speaks to your own Islamophobia. So how much are we checking our own privilege, our own bias in society in order to shape it? So look, I, let me put it this way. People say, and people say this to me all the time, for instance, when it comes to women's rights, that what are you banging on about? There are all these laws that protect women today. I'm like, well, if those laws were working, why would women still be pushing for rights? Yes. Why would we have issues like gender pay gap? If those laws were working, why would, be, why would it be that black and ethnic minorities are still pushing to close the ethnicity pay gap? Why is it that this you know, discrimination still exists? Please open your eyes and see what is there and stop acting oblivious. So my point is, it's all well and good for us to have a collective response and a collective solution, but I'm holding you accountable. I'm asking you what you're going to do about it. That is part of the solution, because if you're not taking individual responsibility to addressing what you see every single day, what the heck do you think is going to happen collectively? What do you think is going to happen in your workplace? What do you, what do you think it will, ha will happen in government? Jack all is going to happen. It's going to be a vicious cycle of the same thing over and over again. And it'd be people like me still, you know, using my saliva to talk about the same thing over and over again. I'm probably gonna end up having to write another book about why I'm still resisting. I mean, come on. That's it. Dr. Shana, do you know what? 
I think I absolutely agree with the individual responsibility so important. We've got a question from Sarah. Before we move on to that, um, you've just raised holding government accountable, holding ourselves accountable. Um, what would you, advice would you give to people listening today who choose not to vote because we have elections coming up? Because they see there's no point or they won't elect a representative. Um, what advice would you give to those people to encourage them to vote, hopefully? Oh we are amongst friends, right? Amongst friends. So I'm going to talk the same way I would if I was with friends. What the heck are you Absolutely. thinking? What do you mean you don't feel like voting because there's no point? What kind of thinking is that? How is that going to change, Jackal? You need... Okay. All right. Now I'll move on to the... Okay, let's talk about how we can talk about this nicely. We need to move from this mindset of my vote won't matter or it's not going to change anything because that is what they're counting on. You see, those people who don't want to change anything, they're counting on you being oblivious. They're counting on you being too tired, being totally fatigued. They're counting on you not giving a rat's ass so that they can continue to do what they're doing. Please, in the name of God and all that is good, don't do that. Make your vote count. Um, get your, your family members, your, your friends, get everybody out there to vote. You know, the funny thing is, I was in a meeting a few weeks ago and we were talking about the upcoming mayoral elections. And I said, oh, I can't remember if I voted in the last one, that maybe this is actually going to be the first one. And it was like, oh, Shola, how? Because I'm like, I know I pay attention a lot to the general elections, but you know, I'm, go I'm getting old. This is why my kids call me ancient. And so I asked my husband, I'm like, what did we do in the last one? And my husband rolls his eyes and gets, he goes, you gave me a big headache. So I had to go make sure I voted. I said, oh, so we did look, but I couldn't remember that, that far back. The point is your vote counts today. Please just look at the past year with the pandemic, with those who suffered and took the brunt of it, from women to ethnic minorities, the economic situation. Look at the way the government mismanaged, totally mis mishandled the whole thing. Look at the ongoing corruption. Are you tired of it? If you're tired of it, not voting is not a solution. Eh, don't make me turn Nigerian on you right now because I'll be saying a whole lot more. You need to speak up through your vote. And if, if it means having, you know, sometimes with my with friends at home, um, I don't know what your favorite foods are, but over a nice plate of jollof fries and some grilled fish, and you know, you down with some nice bottle of Coke, we're having some serious arguments. Ah, do you know what happened here? This is what you should be doing. This is what you should be doing with your with your friends and your family. I mean, to my kids, I tell them we're not arguing, that we are discussing. But you know what I mean? It's an exchange of different <laughs> opinions. The point is you want everybody to get, get off their butts and go exercise your vote, please. So I don't know if I've encouraged you, but I feel satisfied that I'm not sugarcoating my words because that would irritate the life out of me if I had to go. Well, please, it really matters if you act. What are you thinking? Go vote. What are you waiting for? Hundred <laughs> um, percent. I've been brought up to know to 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 vote, to be aware of what's going on, to yeah, to exercise your political right. Because if you don't, um, every vote counts. If you don't speak up for yourself, nobody else is going to speak up for yourself. And we've got lots of questions, especially about food for you. Food is one of our favourite things on RTP here. But before we do that, we have Sarah ready to ask you a question. So he's going to unmute Sarah. So over to Sarah. 
Hi, Dr. Shola. Um, this is, uh, you have covered so much in the last 20 minutes that it's, it's, I'm struggling to take it all in, but I wanted to touch on, upon something a bit more that uh, we kind of brushed over, but we didn't really get into, which is you said that faith is at the core of everything that you do. Can you talk a bit more about how faith is at the core of what you do? Why is it at the core of what you do? So um, first and foremost, if you ask me who I am, I'm a child of God. That's the first thing, first thing. Not the color of my skin, not my gender, not my sex, not being a mom, not being caring, none of that. First of all, I'm a child of God. Um, and I have a relationship with God. I don't do, I like to say I don't do religion because to me, religion is man-made. Religion is, this is how you must be with God. This is how you must do things with God. Nonsense. I, I, I get up and go, Father, good morning, Father. What's up, Father? That's the relationship I have with my God. I, I you know, sometimes I joke that, um, that I'm sure when I'm praying, God is like, oh my God, is that Shalaide? Well, what has happened now? Hmm? What is, didn't you send her that thing I asked you to send her? We sent it, Lord, but I don't think she said. So I kind of have things sometimes that God is having that conversation that, oh, my child Shola has come again. Okay, my dear, what has happened now? Um, I believe very strongly in having a relationship with God. Um, because for me, that's the foundation of who I am. That God is who grounds me. He's my, I mean, some may think God is he, she, my, my children actually. I heard, overheard a conversation that we're having once and it said God is gender neutral. I'm like, you know, I'm down with that. That's fine. Um, God is my how, my who, my what, my why. The, the, the beginning, the end, the alpha, the omega. He, he. For me, my relationship with God is what grounds me. So when I feel sometimes I'm, um, you know, between a rock and a hard place, the Lord God is right there. He's telling me, go forward. Go, you step forward and the Red Sea will part, you see. So for me, my faith is, is everything to me. I, you know, some people have asked me, how do you deal with this negative trolling and all the ugliness you get? Because I do get a lot of them, you know, it's just some threats and all kind of stuff. I remember giving an example. Um, I remember seeing this message um, from a troll that called me um, an ugly monkey and I should go back to where I came from. And I remember in that moment, as I was reading it, you know how your brain is comprehending, digesting? But as I was reading the message, my faith was responding at the same time with a quote from the Bible that says, you are wonderfully and fearfully made. I said, God, I'm fine. I know I'm beautiful. Do you see what I mean? It's my God grounds me. So I don't need anyone to tell me I'm pretty. I'm smart. When God has already told me I am, whose report are you going to believe? Believe the report of the Lord. So my faith is everything. And even when I get, when I get things wrong, God, I'm so sorry. I, I know, I know, I know why did I do that? You know, I, my, I, I just believe very much in that I'm a work in progress and that my faith continually builds me up by the grace of God, inshallah. So beautiful. So you touched upon um, what I found really interesting though, you touched on bias, our own bias and we all have our own biases and we all have our own prejudice, but how can we keep, or how do you keep, you use your faith to keep those biases in check? Mm. You know, That's and a great question. That's a great question. Encourage diversity and inclusion. That's a great question because I, I will tell you that 
there's a lot that we have learned and internalized through society. Society has taught us this is the way certain things should be. And then it comes into conflict with, sometimes it comes into conflict with what you believe, right? To be right or wrong. You know, when people talk about unconscious bias, I, I, I try to correct them. And I explain there's, there is nothing unconscious about bias. It is conscious. By all means, it's somewhere in your subconscious. It's just waiting for the right circumstances to trigger it. And as far as I'm concerned, if you're a grown person, okay, an adult, you there is no excuse as to why you don't know what your biases are. I think that as biases, as we face our biases, we get better. But we have to be able to face them. You have to be able to say, okay, why am I responding in this way to this question or that to that statement or to what I've just seen? But I don't know how many of us question ourselves that way. I, I, I don't know why we are waiting to be, I don't know, sent to some unconscious bias training where most people come out the same way they went in, which means you've learned to jack all, right? Bias is not just something you imbibe, it's something that has been, sub, has been subconsciously taught to you over time. Recently, I gave this example. So I'm very pro-LGBT, right? But I, I realized in my early 20s when, um, you know, we had the civil partnership and then it moved from civil partnership to marriage. Now, I always understood, I did not have the words in my early 20s to, to say or to express what I can say and express now. I was pretty young, right? But I remember when I heard the news, I think it was either on TV or so, and I heard the news that we were now, that there was going to be same-sex um, same marriage. Now, I was moving, this is me that I've been like, that's right, we must have, you know, um, LGBT community must have the same rights, must have the same. But I remember the, when I heard the words, there was going to be same-sex marriage. Even though this is me going, yeah, yeah, LGBT, a thought came into my head questioning, well, is that marriage? And in that moment, I didn't have anybody else to talk to. But in that moment, I felt really uncomfortable with myself because I was like, well, why am I questioning whether, whether that's marriage? Uh, I have no issue with the LGBT community. Why is the word marriage now creating a conflict in my mind? I was subconsciously having this conversation with myself, not anybody else. And then, but I, because I was conflicted, I didn't understand, I did not understand why I was conflicted. That made me feel uncomfortable until I realized what the problem was. I went, oh my God, now I understand why. And this was over 20 years ago. I realized that I'd been brought up with the understanding that marriage was only between two different sexes, only between a man and a woman. That I'd never seen a same-sex marriage in my life before at that time, do you see? So the question that came to my mind was responding to the reality as I knew it. And the moment I realized that that was the issue, I was like, ah, okay. I started to unpick my own learning. I didn't have these words that I have now then, but I must have done something then because ever since then, my whole thinking was very, it's is very, yeah, yeah, this is a, because I've taken the time to question myself as to why did I respond that way to the term same-sex marriage? Because I realized, as I said, that society had taught, taught me, or society teaches us that marriage is between a man and a woman. But in today's world, my children, our children are growing up in a world where family, family has, it has different dimensions, right? 
family is not just between a father and a, and a father and mother. It's two fathers. It's two mothers. So my kids are never going to have that question pop up in their heads because all I'd seen at up to that time, well, 20 years ago, but was what I explained, which was marriage between you know, um, a, a man and a woman. And also because as a Christian, you only read about marriage between male and female, correct? But the moment I realized that was the issue, I unpicked my learning. My faith taught me better. I went, okay, it means this is also what marriage looks like. It means this is also what family looks like. And I think we need to have more of such conversations with ourselves. When you have that kind of conflict or you question, mm, but why did I respond that way? Have that conversation with yourself first before you open your mouth and start going, well, I think, what do you think when you've not even thought it through yourself? <laughs> Absolutely. And is it very interesting, you, um, you touch on this and you touch on relationships and society. So this is something that you may have experienced in perhaps in your community. So the um, Islamic community is very diverse. We have people, as I said, from a range of ethnicities and communities, but there is still a lot of divisiveness present as well as those who have different interpretations of faith, which I know is the same as in the Christian faith as well. So how can we, on a ground level, on an individual level, what more can people do to bring unity and address those issues of racism and differences? Well, I think the first thing for us to understand is that differences should be embraced. That difference can be a good thing. That we cannot all be the same. And um, the truth about love is that love is not an emotion. Love is, is action. Love is simply accepting you as you are and you accepting me as I am. And if we start from that, from that point of view, then I think that that makes it easier for people to understand what we should expect from each other. And that for me also speaks really um, widely to, to, to understanding that we can act in love when I say in love, I don't mean in the, um, like, I love you, I can't live without you. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying we can act out of love for each other and still have a difference of opinion. That's okay too, okay? okay. My husband disagrees with 50% of what I, what I say. I've not divorced him yet, have I? I mean, it is perfectly okay to have differences of opinions. I mean, that just enriches your, your thinking. A lot of the... Um, TV debates that I do. What people don't know is I probably had those conversations with my husband at home. So when these people come with their political, you know, thinking, I'm like, I know where you're coming from. I've heard that one before. Okay, I'm ready for you because <laughs> I've done this already. Because you have to be ready to open yourself to, um, to, you know, to different thinking because you may be persuaded to think otherwise. I think it enriches your own thinking and opens and broadens your, your mindset. And that's okay. Yeah, you need to you do need to embrace and, and broaden your own mindset before you can address any other challenges. Yes. And that leads you really nicely onto um, Shabana's question because she's got a fantastic question for you. So over to you, Shabana. Um, my question's just um, it's more just obviously you have numerous successful careers, including being a lawyer and an author as well as an activist. Um, which one has been the most challenging and? In which career have you faced the most obstacles? Oh my God. I, I honestly, I'm looking at the time, but. Um, <laughs> you can stay with us just like 
you're all, having fun we love you we we're really really enjoying you but you know the chat box is buzzing okay so let me put it this way i think if i'm perfectly honest in every every career um every path there's i've had to face different things it's not been plain safe it's by the grace of god it's honestly by the grace of god um but I'm a strong believer that what doesn't kill you builds you. And whatever experience I've had in my legal career and barriers I've had to overcome there has strengthened me in my activism and advocacy work. And some of the barriers that I face in my activism and advocacy work has helped me in other projects and other work and other paths that paths that I, I that I'm treading and I'm you know that I, I'm taking part in. I think all of these things help to make me who I am, but the center of it all, my people, is my faith. Because it is still my faith that is at the center. Whether I'm a lawyer, a mummy, you know, a carrier, it is my faith at the center of it all. And that is what that is what holds me strong. And that's why I can sit here today. I can sit here today talking about stuff. Um, you know, I as an example, when I wrote this is what I, I wrote this is why I resist last year, and I done the first draft in like, in like six weeks, right? It's always so heartwarming when I hear people talk about reading my book and that they can hear my voice when they're reading my book, that they can feel my energy and my passion when they're reading my book. What they don't know is that that was my prayer point. That was in my prayer point to God. I said, Father Lord, how? I need to be able to write this in a way that people can hear what I'm saying. They can hear my voice. They can feel as though they're having a conversation with Shola as they're reading this book. Um, because sometimes, you know, it, it's, it's not so easy to be able to take your thoughts from here and put it on paper. But each time I'm like, Father Lord, please open it up for me. Just give me the words to write. Give me the words to speak that can, that will fully express what I'm trying to say. And I'm so grateful God did that. I, Farah mentioned earlier about imposter syndrome, you know, and you know, we all go through different things before you embark on anything, whether it's writing a book or anything you're trying to do. What, what people won't realize is that it took me several weeks to put, get my butt in place to start writing this book. Because I kept going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, can I do this? Oh my God, can I write this? Oh my God, can I? I was, and then my, my, it got to a point that my kids were like, have you finished yet? Please, can you just finish writing this book? And the day I sent off my first draft to my editor, the huge sigh of relief in my house. It was like it was time to have a party. If it wasn't for the lockdown, I'm telling you, they would have invited friends and neighbors around to say, finally, we, we have, we've been set free from this place where our mother's like, I can't think, I'm typing, I'm writing, everybody leave me alone. Fantastic. Shamal, that is, um, the work you've done is amazing. And I've read about the work that you've done with female refugees and asylum, female asylum um, seekers. So what challenges because have you faced? Um, well, first of all, where have, where have most of these women come from? Which countries have they come from? Be interesting. But what challenges have you faced when working with these women and encourage them to use the voice that they have been blessed with? You know, the interesting thing is that, um, okay, so this charity is called Women for Refugee Women. And um, I, I taught intersectional feminism there for over a year, uh, 
for over a year and a half, actually, so almost two years. And I was recommended by, by friend to the CEO, to the executive director. And they said, we think Shalal would be great. So this is me on the phone with the director. And I'm like, look, I really would like, I, it sounds really great. It, it sounds like something I would really like to do, but I don't know if I can commit time-wise because I know myself, I know how I'm juggling all kinds of stuff. And I didn't want to start something and then have to let them down. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to commit it into God's hands. Let's just go. Let, let's go. Let's see how it goes. Maybe three months. We'll see. And three months led to over a year and a half. And I have to tell you, I don't know about the ladies, but I came out of that experience a different person from the person that went in. It was almost as though I went there to be renewed as opposed to me going there to help teach and shape. I, I mean, from the feedback I've gotten, I've helped to teach it and shape thinking. Now, these women were from different parts of the world um, uh, and they, they all came with different skill sets, different experiences. And it's really been hard for them here in the UK where they're being treated as less than human, where they're not being recognized for their skills or what they can do to con contribute to society, having to fight to, to have a voice. So my role, I, you know, my, my own thing is always to speak truth and to engage in truth with everybody. I, what I wanted them to do was to prepare. I said to them constantly, it's not the day you get your papers that you start getting ready to be a member of society. You need to start acting like a member of society now. You need to start preparing. You need to know what is going on. You need to engage in discourse. You need to keep yourself informed. You need to abide by the rules. And aside from abiding by the rules, what can you do? What else? Because you can imagine how frustrating it must be for them that their hands are tied. Things that come naturally to them to do, they can't do. They can't work. They can't, I mean, to even study, they don't have money to pay for them to study. So really their hands are tied. So, uh, so what I did was to meet with them once, uh, um, once a week on a Monday, and we would spend an exciting one, one hour talking about all kinds of things. There were times in my class, Farah, that I would nearly piss myself laughing. These women so so smart, so astute. They had all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, difference of opinions. Uh, it was fantastic. We had political debates there, social debates, all kinds of things. It, it was really heartwarming. It always felt as though I was among among friends, and they they varied in ages as well. And it's it's so important because we forget that just because English is not somebody's first language, perhaps it doesn't mean that they have don't have a voice. That's right. And it's important to encourage them to use that voice and to recognize that they are. And there's a conversation I was having, um, I have quite regularly. And um, whenever I go somewhere, I'm sure you're probably the same. You know, I like to have a chat with people. And um, it's um, people are sadly discriminated when they work in, for instance, the service sector and so on and so forth. But what, you know, others might not realize that this person might have three degrees. They're just, you know, trying to find. Yeah. When you have a chat with them, you know, they're just trying to find their feet. And it's so important to, um, I think, as a person of faith or just to acknowledge people for the great individuals that they are without judging them for not 
being able to speak English as a first language. Uh, oh, absolutely. And I think sometimes we have to learn, and I think I've learned this because of what I've been through. You have mm -hmm. to learn to take what is being used against you and turn it on its head. You see? So yeah. I get some people who say to me, oh, but you don't have an English accent. You have an accent. I'm like, well, you have an accent too. <laughs> yes, yes. I, can you understand what I'm saying? And sometimes I make, I make um, certain accents that I use even more pronounced because I know it really takes them off. You know what I mean? It gives me such satisfaction. But um, the point is, sometimes we have to take what is being used against us and turn it on its head. That's what we should do and have fun with it. Because, you know, you have to know that these people have nothing more. They have nothing else. And they want to see you hurt. But no, what you must do, because people, other people have been here before us, right? Something in your DNA tells you we've seen this before. So it had, you have to get to a point where you like, you just shrug it off. You just go, Mm, mm. So just like the person trying to call me an ugly monkey and I, you know, me remembering the biblical words that says I am wonderfully and fearfully made. Oh, I'm like, Shala, you're a fine girl. You're a fine girl. Look at me smiling. I'm a fine girl. <laughs> well, it's so true. I mean, I'm from a multilingual, um, multicultural, multi-ethnic background. And it's, yeah, you do. Sometimes you have to use those stereotypes and certain ways to make people realize that you know i am me and that's so important and you know what we've got so many questions sarah is a sarah's one of our regular um, guests and sarah says you know she's a teacher of english to speak of other languages and uh, including lots of refugees and um there are so many assumptions based on their accents and their countries of origin mm -hmm. um yeah ab absolutely and sarah's like passionate about giving them a voice and recognizing their um abilities and I mean, it's interesting. I mean, English is my mother's seventh language. So, you know, I always, you know, admire my mother's language. Think about that for a second. Do you know yeah. how smart and versatile you must be to be able to speak seven languages? Woo! My she heart went in, English. She went to college, she was educated in French. It's so, so different. But you know, I've got a mother who always says, you know, you've got to, you've got to try and put yourself. And you know what? We've got Havas in. It's so exciting to ask you a question. Time has flown by. We've got six minutes until Adan. I'm going to try. I have to go soon. Well, we, we're going to just give you maybe four or five more minutes. Okay, we're going to give Havazin. Really would love to ask you questions. So over to you, Havazin. Hi, everyone. Hi there. Thank you for your talk quickly. My question was, uh, what's the next step? What's the next step that you think we should take uh, to see things improving on racism or, for, or women rights in general? Should it be like a general conscious or more laws to protect us? What do you think? Look, I call for a conscious revolution. When you read my book, I talk about it some more, a conscious revolution. And that is where we're looking at both individual and collective responsibility. I think the change we want to see on issues of race, racism and race inclusion, women's rights, um, ending anti-Semitism, ending Islamophobia, and so many other expressions of hate starts with you and I. It starts with a conscious revolution. It starts with people opening their God-given mouth to say something, to do something when something is wrong. <clears throat> it means silence is complicity. <clears throat> Look, I get that not everybody has a loud voice, but you don't need to ha have a loud voice. I get that everybody does not necessarily have to appear like, oh, look at me, um, don't mess with me. Rubbish, you don't need any of that. 
everything you are is perfect for your form of activism. So whether that means you speaking out or you going to speak to somebody you know can speak out even louder, then you do it, period. So we need to keep educating ourselves. That's what we also must do. We need to stop um, having this, um, uh, what's called plausible deniability. No, 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 none of that. If you're a grown ass person in 2021, don't tell me, oh, Shola, I just didn't know. I'm sorry, where have you been? Hiding on a rock? If you, if, I mean, why do I have to pick your learning? Don't get me started on that. The point is, conscious revolution means you and I taking that responsibility and letting that start to reflect in every space we encounter. And that's why I so say whether it's in your school, in your workplace, who you vote for, how you vote, what you see on the bus, on the high street, do so. Oh, thank you very much. Was that a moment? <laughs> until our valentine we're going to make the best of you because she's fantastic so Javier Liam asks um because he can't sort of he's um got people around him he asks have you ever experienced impact of institutional racism in your work with refugees yes is the answer to that question and I joined a, a number of um campaigns to um to address this issue look a lot of refugees particularly those of you know ethnic minorities black and ethnic minorities racism plays a huge issue in how policies are defined and played out in in whether or not they they get to stay in our country right so <clears throat> everything about the hostile environment was about excluding people you know black and ethnic minorities, the Windrush generation. We know that. And the root of every single one of these policies is rooted in otherism. It's rooted in they don't belong here. Heck yes, they belong here. They belong, they belong here because you went there. If you didn't go there in the first place, would we be here? Don't, don't get me started. The point is a lot of contributions from African countries, Afro-Caribbean countries, um, you know, other ethnic minority countries that have come to the, uh, to the UK and are part of the British society. A lot of the policies that we have around these things are rooted, they are steeped in um, white supremacy, they're steeped in um, institutional racism. That is what responds to that. People remember that the Home Office was held to be institutionally racist you know as a result of the inquiry that went into the windrush scandal but we already knew that you see we, we didn't need the inquiry to to state it but thank god the inquiry did that but we all already knew that right but even now you still have the government boris johnson's government denying that institutional racism exists can we do it's um all right, what can we do? But we can exercise our right to vote, we can make our voice heard. And before we finish off, Shola, we're going to go into the Azan. Any final reflections for our guests? It's been a pleasure. I loved having you. No, thank you so much. I'm, I'm so honored to, to be here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I, it's fantastic always to be among people who are, you know, 
like-minded in terms of peace to me is at the center of everything. Acceptance to me is at the center of everything. Um, uh, and peace, acceptance are, are all rooted in love. Okay, I know I'm using the word love again. Don't think I'm all mushy mushy. My husband would not even think I'm mushy mushy, but the point is, this is all what love looks like. You act out of love. You don't need to, it's not an emotion. You simply act it. Um, I, you know, I, I'm fond of saying that when God in the Bible says, love thy neighbor as you love yourself, it didn't ask you to feel love for your neighbor. He said, that's an action. Just act out of love, period. Um, and I, I would say to, to the audience, please don't let people, don't let people get to you about what you know to be the truth. Leave yourself room to be able to grow um, with different conversations and different, you know, understandings that are out there. Um, but continually in faith, grow. Continually in faith, love. Continually in faith, fight for what is right. Because that's the important thing. And I'm going to leave with this. Someone asked me once how, as a Christian, I could be fighting for LGBT rights. And I could be saying the things that I say about. And I remember saying to the person that if you're walking past a, a ditch and you hear somebody crying out, help me, help me, are you going to go over to that ditch and say, um, before I put my hand down, can you tell me, are you Muslim? Uh, are you Jewish? Are you LGBT? No, you put your you put your damn hands down there and bring that person out. But what if you were the person in the ditch crying out for help and somebody puts their hand down to help you. You can say, um, hold on, hold on one second. I'm sorry. Can I just check Mr. Mr. or Miss Helper? Uh, are you Muslim? Are you Jewish? Are you black? Are you LGBT? Heck no. You're going to grab that hand for, you know, within an inch of your life to get the heck out of your ditch. That is where we should all be. We should be, lift, you know, using our hands to lift up our brothers and sisters because that is who we are, first of all. And that doesn't mean you don't fight the evil. You fight that evil. You grab the bull by the horns and you ride that bull to within an inch of its life and you fight it. But I think the first and always is always to remember we are stronger together, united with all of our beautiful differences. I mean, look at beautiful Farah, look at beautiful me. And together we are beautiful together forever, yes? Why would we want to sound alike, look alike, do exactly the same thing? That's so boring, right? We should accept each other. Yeah, embrace Thank our differences and embrace our humanity and yeah, love it. what we want for, for ourselves. And now over to Azan. Thank you, Shola, so much. If you can say for Azan, we'll do a final thanks. And if not, I understand. Uh, you got me into so much trouble. You know, I was meant to I'm like, oh my God, the apologies. Four more minutes, Shola. Just our final thanks. Thank you. Over to Azan now. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much everyone for joining us today on the Islam channel, on Facebook, on YouTube, and it's been great. We've had Dr. Chola with us today, who's kept us all on our toes, kept us really engaged, and it's been a fantastic engagement, so thank you so much to the audience. Um, I just want to say a big thank you once again to the Islam channel, our media partner, and also to the Arts Council UK for making this event possible. You can read more about the work that we are doing and how we're fighting the world hunger with Islamic relief at iiuk.co forward slash rtp. And Ramadan is a month of charity and giving, so we want to encourage you to support the Ramadan Tent Project and help us to continue our work because your support is vital to keep us going as the world transitions back to normality. And um, this work will also help us to continue our Open Iftars, our Sunnah Fasts and other events.
You can donate on our website at uh, ramadan10project.com or on our launchgood page, launchgood.com forward slash RTP2021. And um, thank you so much, everyone, for joining today. Join us again tomorrow, inshallah. Asalaamu Alaikum. <laughs>